All right. Well, we have been in a series we started last week called Live No Lies. Live No Lies. Uh, we're pulling inspiration from a book of the same name called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. And uh, it's available on Amazon. You should order it. If you are interested in this topic and you want more or you've got more questions or all those kinds of things, this book has a lot more than we're giving you. We're giving you a little bit of it. And so uh, I love it. I believe in it. I think it's a message we need for the times we're living in. It's called Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. Last week, we, we talked about the first enemy of peace because this is what this series is about. We are living in the midst of a war, a war for our peace, a war for our hearts, a war for our souls. And the enemies that we're fighting against are not flesh and blood. We believe that as the church, we're never called to fight enemies of flesh and blood. As Christians, we're never called to fight enemies of flesh and blood. Our enemies are not people. People are not your enemy. It's so important for us to understand that. But rather, our enemies are the same enemies that humanity has always had. The devil, the flesh, and the world. They work together and their strategy is pretty simple. They use deceptive ideas from the devil that feed disordered desires from our flesh that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. And this three-part attack has been super effective since the Garden of Eden. It's a strategy that works. You don't have to go looking for evidence that this strategy works because we can feel it. We can feel as our world feels like it is coming apart at the seams, we are worn down and exhausted by it. We can see the effects of this three-pronged attack in every part of our lives. I believe that there can be good in this life, joy in this life, peace in this life, that we have a great purpose to live in this life. And our goal in this series is to help us identify these strategies of these enemies to know who they are and how they're coming after us so that instead of living in this exhaustion, we can live in the rest of Jesus. We can live in the peace and the goodness and the joy and all the fulfillment you were made to exist in every day. That is our goal in this series, really that we would live no lies and that we would be able to expose those lies and the strategy that we're entrapped in so that we can experience the fullness that God intends for us. Last week, we talked about that first enemy, the devil. The devil has one play. He's got one move, and it is incredibly effective. He lies. He lies about everything. He lies about you. He lies about me. He lies about God. He lies about what the truth is. And his lies have infiltrated every part of our culture. They've infiltrated our minds, our hearts. They are everywhere. And so we talked about that last week and how to stand up against his lies. This week, I want to talk about another one of the enemies of our peace, and that is the flesh. We're going to talk about this enemy that is the flesh today. Just a warning, if you're in here with young kids, this message is going to be probably PG-10, actually. Because if your kids are over 10, they're going to hear the other side of this conversation in school every time they go into it. And so probably a good thing for them to be in this room today. Uh, but we're going to be talking about sexuality today, and I know that's a sensitive topic. And so I'm giving you a little warning up front, and some grown adults just left. They were like, I'm not doing it. Um, most of us have heard the saying, the heart wants what the heart wants. The heart wants what the heart wants. It's a beautiful line. It's poetic. In fact, it was written by Emily Dickinson. That's why it's so good. And she knows what she's doing. And she wrote that a long time ago, but that 
phrase was popularized in our culture and today by a guy named Woody Allen. Uh, if you don't know who Woody Allen is, he's a filmmaker. He still makes the odd film here and there, but he was really big in the 70s, 80s, early 90s. And Woody Allen was this famous filmmaker, and he was married to an actress named Mia Farrow. When they got married, she had a six-year-old daughter uh, that she had adopted, and Woody Allen became this girl's father figure growing up. Well, Mia and Woody, their marriage hit the rocks, and they got separated, and they were moving towards divorce, had been separated for a little while, and one day, Mia Farrow comes into Woody Allen's home, and on his mantelpiece, uh, she sees nude photos of her 18-year-old daughter, Soon Yi. And Woody Allen said, yeah, we've, we've been in a relationship. We started a relationship. We're in love. Just a reminder here, Woody Allen is 54 years old at this time. She's 18. And he has been her father since she was six. At age, when Soon Yi was 21, Woody Allen and Soon Yi got married. An interviewer is talking to Woody Allen sometime later, and he's asking him about this whole story. And he says to Woody Allen, he says, Do you feel any guilt or remorse for this? Don't you think that this was kind of wrong, what you did? To which Woody Allen responded, The heart wants what the heart wants. Feels a little bit yucky now, doesn't it? But what a great example of what we mean when we talk about the desires of the flesh. The heart wants what the heart wants is what Woody Allen said, but what the Bible would call that is the flesh. The flesh wants what the flesh wants. The idea is pretty simple. We have these drives inside of us that exist for our own good and for our survival as individuals and as a species. But when those drives are disordered and given the wrong priority and the wrong reign over our lives, they can lead us instead of to life, they can lead us to a spiritual death. And that's what all the warnings about the flesh in Scripture come down to. Disordered desires. So let me answer some questions about this enemy of the heart and spell it out plain for us. The first question is, what is the flesh? What do I mean when I say the flesh? I summarized it in the story there, but let me get a little bit more specific. What is the flesh? Paul talks about it the most in the epistles. He speaks a lot about the flesh. And there's a reason. That's in context. Paul's ministry was to plant churches and help them understand the gospel in a culture that had no clue about any of it. He was helping Jewish people understand a whole new way of living in a post-Messianic world, and he was helping pagans transition to a life of Christianity from pagan religions. It was a big work. And the Roman Empire that Paul was working within, culturally speaking, really wasn't all that different from the world that you and I live in today. The people of that time had a, if it feels good, do it mentality. Their morality was defined not by an absolute sense of right and wrong, but rather by what was accepted in their culture and what was not. The right and wrong barometer shifted with every generation throughout the Roman Empire. There was a lot of misplaced sexuality. There was rampant drug and alcohol use. They were driven by greed. People were sorted into castes. In other words, what you were able to accomplish in life and how well you were treated depended on how you were born and who you were born to. And people were always just working to move up to the next level so that their kids could experience a different caste than the one that they were born into. This culture was motivated primarily by self-interest. Not so different 
from the world that we're living in right now. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to Galatia, which is a country that doesn't exist anymore, but it was part of where Turkey is today. That's where it was in the world. Galatia is an interesting place because it was at this time primarily occupied by Celtic people. The culture was very Celtic. In the third century BC, the Celts went there as mercenaries and they stayed and this whole region of Galatia became their home. And so it was a mixture culture of Greek influence and Celtic influence and Roman influence. Not a lot of Jewish influence. And so a lot of what we were, what they were being taught as new followers of Jesus was brand new to them. In fact, the book of Galatians, it spells a lot of things out very plainly because that's how Paul had to communicate to the people of Galatia. And so in Galatians chapter 5, right before Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, if you grew up in Sunday school, uh, then maybe you know the fruits of the Spirit, love, patience, kindness, goodness, all these good things, right? Right before Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit, he describes the flesh. And so let's look at how he defines it and Uh, in the plainest terms we can right here in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. He starts like this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Paul is writing to a culture that doesn't have the same moral compass as the place he was raised. However, as people, we all have an inherent understanding of the things we would consider our flesh. Whether we think of them as vices, guilty pleasures, sins, personality traits, just the way people are, it's a pretty familiar list. He starts the list here, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. If you've ever been in church before, you expect to see this on the list. What sexual immorality is gets defined in different places all throughout scriptures, but it's generally referred to as anything sexual in nature outside the commitment of a biblical marriage. From start to finish, the Bible is really clear about God's plan for sexuality. He created us with sexual desire on purpose. He made pleasure a part of our sexual experience on purpose. Sex itself is not evil or wrong, and it shouldn't be something we whisper about, avoid, or shroud in guilt. This is a place that the church has misstepped some over the years. We've gone the opposite way with sexuality, and we've shrouded it in guilt and shame, so much so that even just to think about or say the word sex was to bring shame into your heart, and we expect children to do that when they're teenagers, but then the second they get married, all that guilt's supposed to disappear, and some of you are in therapy right now trying to work that out, and some of you need to be. That's not what God designed sexuality to be like. It was meant for us. It's supposed to be a good thing. It was supposed to be something that brings joy and intimacy into our lives. It's not inherently evil or wrong. However, what the Bible makes clear about sexuality is that it is something that was designed to bind us together in intimacy. Intimacy that is physical, spiritual, and emotional. And so it's something that we have to protect There's a holiness to sexuality throughout the Bible. Within a marriage, sex is celebrated, but outside of it, the Bible doesn't shy away from showing us the damage it can do. In fact, the heroes of the Bible have done, the Bible does not shy away from describing all the ways that not living within God's dream of sexuality for them has hurt their lives. 
And so the Bible protects it, it's careful with it, but it also has boundaries around it for good reason. Sexuality, impurity, and debauchery. Verse 20 says, idolatry and witchcraft. So we're talking about what the flesh is. Sexuality, sexual immorality, and now we're in idolatry and witchcraft. These two were huge in the world that Paul was writing to. The Celtic tradition, the Roman tradition, the Greek tradition, they all worship carved idols. So a lot of them had small idols that they would carry around with them every day and kind of rub and pray to throughout the day. They would set them out and pray to them wherever they would sleep at night. Uh, a lot of them had carved idols in their homes that were larger that they would build altars around. The Greeks had these, built the, in Galatia these great, beautiful temples with carved idols inside of that they would go and worship. And idols for everything, for all kinds of different things. The Roman Empire, you, there would be marketplaces with all kinds of trinkets that would help you to pursue a new part of spirituality, you know, one for fertility, uh, one for blessing over your home, one for wisdom in your children. And you would get all these idols and collect them. And that was just a huge part of the culture that they lived in. They also had spiritual rituals that would align with the kind of witchcraft that's still practiced in this city today. Um, now, witchcraft, where he says witchcraft here, it's coming from the Greek word pharmakia, which is the word that we get pharmacy from. And it's actually specifically talking about a kind of witchcraft that involves po potions, poisons, drug use, and different ways to access a different spiritual plane is the way they would have spoken about it. So by extension, the kind of sorcery that Paul refers to includes calling on demons or nature in an, ex in an attempt to access some supernatural power without God's help. Here's how you can interpret the inclusion of witchcraft in this list to our culture. Our flesh longs for a spiritual experience, longs for it. And it longs for it because our flesh longs for God and for the touch of his Holy Spirit. But as with any other thing on this list, our flesh would desire that experience without God. It wants to be in control of it. So anything that gives us a spiritual experience that is not from God or the pursuit of a spiritual experience that is not from God is counted as pursuing the disordered desires of our flesh. He goes on, idolatry and witchcraft, and then he says hatred and discord and jealousy and fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. So the next thing on the list is the simple act of giving ourselves over to our basest instincts and emotions, allowing our most basic emotions to run rampant within us is our disordered desires from our flesh. We all have all of these things in us. And the more that we feed them, the more that they grow. He goes from envy into drunkenness, orgies, and the like. This means getting drunk, very kind of plain, and having wild parties like the kind on MTV, okay? Like stuff that you guys love to watch on The Bachelor. Okay, drunkenness, orgies, and the likes in there, obviously, all right? He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So this is a categorical list of what the Bible calls the flesh. To sum it up, your flesh is pretty easily described as the desires that exist within you for pleasure, gratification, or fulfillment, disordered 
to appeal to your most primal desires rather than to what may or may not be right. Okay, so that's what the flesh is. Next, how does the flesh harm us? If that's what the flesh is, how does the flesh harm us? And here's the question people have asked ever since it came out of the serpent's mouth. How is this really going to hurt me? I mean, is all this stuff all that bad? If it, if it doesn't hurt anybody else, am I really hurting anyone by living this way? If these things kind of, you know, if I enjoy them, if they gratify me, how is it hurting me at all if it's not hurting anybody else? Interesting that you should ask that question. I'm so glad you asked. I would love to tell you. Here's a question that you just asked me is the same question that the devil asked Eve in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4. Certainly you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we talked about this last week. The devil's number one strategy is lies. The devil is a liar. He is the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. He lies and he lies to us. And his lie about the fruit here is the same lie that he tells us about gratifying the desires of our flesh. Can it really be all that bad? What harm could come out of this? God just doesn't want you to experience what's good. That's what it comes down to. This stuff's just in the Bible is bad because God doesn't want you to have any fun. God doesn't want you to experience what's good. Where are my church hurt people at? Don't raise your hands. Church hurt was built out of this lie. We're living in a time of both revival within the church and exodus within the church. For the first time in America's history, there are people who don't go, to, there are more people who don't go to church than people who do. And for millennials and older Gen Z, it's a dramatic downturn. Gen X had 49% of its generation in a church. 49%, about half. Boomers were at 54%. Baby boomers. I don't think they like boomers. Sorry. 54%. The majority. To Gen X, 49%. Now the minority. Millennials and older Generation Z is at 26%. Half in one generation. It's a pretty dramatic downturn. There's this huge community of people online who call themselves ex-evangelical. Why? Why is this such a big thing right now in our culture? Well, I think there's two big reasons. I think the first one is that the church has to bear some responsibility. It's, some of it is our fault, Christians. There's been a lot of fumbles, ranging from fallen leaders and liars in the pulpit to legalistic and guilt-driven tactics that have caused trauma that is going to take people years to heal from. Honestly, we don't have time to break down all of this. That'd be a whole sermon series. But I would say that if you are one of these people that have been affected by one of these things and have been hurt by the church, stick with us. I think you'll find that we're a little bit different here. We're trying to rebuild from the Bible up. I've got church hurt. I've got church trauma. I understand. And if you need to talk about it, I'm not very hard to find. But part of it is our responsibility as the church. The second part of it is the exact same lie that the devil told in the garden. The exact same lie. 
The only reason God doesn't want you to live that way is because he's controlling and he wants to keep good things away from you. He's a bully. What harm could any of this do? Surely the church has been wrong about this one. That has been his lie from the beginning. And it is the lie that has permeated our culture today. Let's go into verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Right here we see the very first way that the flesh harms us. We are spiritual beings. A chapter earlier, it describes the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2. And in that passage of man's creation, it says God formed man from the dust of the earth. And then that he breathed his breath of life into him. That breath of life word is the same word that's used for the spirit of God one chapter before. In other words, you are built and you are the only thing in all of creation that is built out of flesh and spirit. You are both flesh and you are spirit. And your design that... Your desire and your design, I just combined those words for a new word. Your design is to have those things in alignment because your body and your spirit were both created by God and for God. So when we serve our flesh by gratifying its desires in their basest form, and we allow the desires of our flesh to get disordered and distorted, our spirit comes out of alignment with our body. And whether or not we have this word for it, that brings us shame. We feel shame. Our soul begins to ache. Shame is the result. And shame, it can be brought on or amplified by a lot of different things. People can push it upon us. A lot of times, that's a source. Too much religion, societal expectations... But shame also comes from within us as a result of our flesh being misaligned with our spirit, our disordered desires. Misaligning our flesh from our spirit brings us to a result of shame. Verse 8, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And before I move on, I want you to understand the implications of this passage. Because immediately we see that they chose to gratify their flesh instead of following the path that God set out for them. And their first response is shame. They have been, they're just the only two people on planet earth, you guys. The temperature in the garden is 75 all the time with the exact perfect amount of humidity, okay? It's great there. Everything they need is provided for them. The presence of God is physically there with them in this space. They are before him. He sees them. They they're uncovered. They're naked. They feel no shame. They choose sin. They gratify their flesh. Shame enters their hearts. They are now stitching clothes out of fig leaves, which sounds absurd, honestly. I've seen fig leaves. They don't look very comfortable or covering, you know? Anyways, they were the first ones to pull away. Because what does it say that God did? Do you think God didn't know that they had made this choice? Do you think he hadn't learned about it yet? That he was about to uncover it? He was about to discover it? 
God is walking, bringing his presence closer to them. And it says, they hid from him. They hid from him. Your shame is telling you that God is pushing you away because of your sin. But the story the Bible tells is that you are pulling yourself away as he pursues you. And this is the next consequence of our disordered desires. Distance from God. And shame drives it. We live how we believe we want to live. And we do what we think is going to make us happy or what the world is telling us is going to make us happy. What the enemy and, and our flesh are all telling us these things are going to make us happy. And so we run this whole list of what the flesh is. We live how we want with our sexuality. We seek spiritual experiences through anything but God. We give ourselves over to our emotions. We overindulge in food, alcohol, and drugs. And the spirit that is within us, our spirit, our soul, gets disordered. And that leads to every other part of us falling out of order. And no matter how bad we chase it, we can't find peace and we can't find satisfaction and we feel shame and bitterness and guilt and anger and confusion. And it draws this chasm between us and God that we are digging, that we are creating. This is what shame does to us. Shame takes us in the moment where we are in the greatest need of community and makes us withdraw from people. Shame takes us at the moment where the only way forward is vulnerability and tells us to build a mask and cover our face up with it so no one sees the real you. Shame tells us that the only one who can heal us and remove this shame from us is the one who is causing the shame upon us. And so we distance ourselves from God, even though he is the only one who can bring peace back into your heart. The second, that is the second consequence of our disordered desires. Look at verse nine. And then the Lord God called to man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree that I commanded you? not to eat from, from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from. And the man said, the woman, the woman that, the woman that you put me here with, the woman. She gave me some of that fruit from the tree. I didn't want to be rude. I ate it. Another symptom is blame. We know something is wrong and it cannot be our fault because we were just doing what our flesh desired. So how could it be wrong? So when we enter into a state of brokenness, it's got to be somebody else's fault. And so it's got to be not my fault. Maybe it's the, I had the wrong influences in my life and it was their fault. They put the beer in my hand. I promise officer. It wasn't me. We have the wrong influences in our life and they were the ones that are driving us to disordered desires or it was God's fault. God's the one that made me feel guilty for it. It's nothing here is bad. Everyone around me is doing it. It couldn't be all that bad. And so this is God's fault for making me feel this way. I don't, I don't even know if I believe in this God anymore. I'm, I'm going to blame. I'm going to find a place to position my blame. I'm going to push my blame in that direction. And so our flesh leads us in this direction. 
to feel shame and shame deep down in our souls. Shame just stuck to the walls of our soul that it's hard to get off. Shame. And then distance from God because of that shame and a belief that getting closer to God will only make that shame worse and worse and worse. But it's the only thing that could heal us. Shame. And then blame. Because if you don't accept any kind of responsibility, you can never get any better. And so it's got to be somebody else's fault. It's all these other things and this and this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to blame. And so here we find ourselves, all of us at some point, living in these consequences of our disordered desires, off balance, pursuing what we think we want and what we think is going to make us happy, but finding no happiness at the end of the journey, only emptiness and pain and suffering and shame. And this is evident in our society. These are the consequences and anyone who just doesn't believe they are the consequences, is trying to hide that they are living in them. The brokenness of this world. The more we feed these disordered desires of our flesh, the stronger they get. It's hard to make the right decisions all the time. The reality is that we don't see or feel these consequences right away, or maybe we do, but we've lived with it for so long that we couldn't identify them. And so we get trapped in this disordered reality as slaves to our flesh and our desires. Maybe you've been in the cycle before where you did identify that some of these things were not good for you. It's funny to watch as the world starts to identify some of the things that the Bible has been calling sin for thousands of years as not good for you or not good for your mental health and tries to find ways around it. But it's a constant battle. I want to I want to be better. I want to do better. I want to, I want to, you know, live in less excess, but it's very difficult because it seems like my whole body is working against me. No matter what I do, I keep doing the other thing. There's a great passage in the scriptures that outlines this exact problem. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter seven, verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is the thing that I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm trying to make the right choices. I am trying to go in the right direction, but I can't do it. And I know that there is this law of my flesh that is operating within me, making choices on my behalf. It is like I am a slave to my own self. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I know God is good, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is so many of our struggle. God gave you sexuality, the desire for the spiritual, a desire to have fun, to have a good time, for adventure. He gave you this wide range of emotions so that you could encounter the depth of the life that you were created to live. 
He gave us food and drink and all these things that our flesh craves so that we could enjoy them and enjoy the fullness of life. When our spirit is aligned with his spirit, we can enjoy them. We can put them in the right order. We can find the guardrails he's given us to enjoy them and thrive within them. You can experience so many good things in this life that God designed you to experience. But it seems that sometimes, no matter how much we want to do that, we just can't do it. Our own minds and bodies seem like they work against us, pushing us in directions we should not go. Even if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you've seen this law at work within yourself. Even when you know something is bad for you, you do it anyways. You know that you're, you're, you know what, you, you, you've seen the image in the mirror. It's time to let this belly slim down a little bit. I'm going to cut out sugar and carbs, but then Rachel shows up with a plate full of cupcakes. What are you going to do? You had no choice but to eat two or three of them. We know this law is at work because it fills movies. We, we see movies about this, songs about it. We're, it's permeated our culture and not Christian culture, the whole culture. Everyone is aware that this is a struggle that we are dealing with. But the only answer for it exists within the context of Scripture and in relationship with Jesus. So are we doomed just to exist this way? Or is there something better for us? In the words of Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death? So number three is this. What do I do? What do I do? I don't want to live in shame anymore. I don't want to be distant from God. I, I, don't want, I don't want to blame anyone else. I just want to be free. But I can't get free. Because no matter what I do, I am at war within myself. I know the right thing to do, but I can't choose it. I am compelled in the wrong direction. What do I do? Paul goes on. We just read verse 24, which is, who will save me from this body of death? Verse 25 says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. He's going on about this conflict he feels. And then chapter eight begins and it says, therefore, and this is, this is one of the most important passages of scripture for you to swallow, memorize, keep in your heart to understand. There is, therefore, we just talked about no matter what I, no matter what I do, I try to do the right thing. I do the wrong thing. No matter what, it just keeps happening. What am I supposed to do? Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord, because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free. The shame that you feel was given to you by people, was given to you by an organization, was given to you by the enemy. It is not from God. He doesn't want you to feel shame or guilt. He wants you to feel freedom. There is no condemnation. I just need you to hear, this is the words of scripture. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He knows you have a hard time getting this right. He knows there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by our flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So here's how the Bible works. The Old Testament tells us the story of God reaching out to his creation for relationship, wanting to know them and wanting to be known by them. There exists in those times something called the law. The law was the best way before Jesus that we could approach God. See, our sin and the decisions that we've made, the way we've given in to our flesh, to the lies of the devil, it's separated us from him because God is good and he is holy. But he describes himself as a compassionate and gracious God. His desire was to be close to you. So the law was supposed to be the way we got there. We would try to follow and live in these confines of the way that God designed us to live. And we would try to do it the very best that we could. And if we made mistakes, then there would be blood sacrifices to atone for those mistakes. And the reality is there were just too many sacrifices because there were so many mistakes because this law was constantly at work within us. I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing. And God knew that. And that's why his plan involved a way out. Because it says here, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, that all those ways to live are still the ways God wants us to live, but that he came to fulfill it. In other words, because we couldn't do the right thing all the time, Jesus came and became the final sacrifice for our sins, the way for us to enter into a relationship with God and experience his presence in a way that no one in humanity had ever experienced it before. Because the presence of the living God, his spirit only lived in the temple in one place all the way until Jesus came. But the day that Jesus died on the cross for you, just to forgive every sin, every time you've gratified your flesh instead of serving God with it, every time your desires got disordered and everything became a mess in your life, every single time, Christ died so that that could be forgiven, would be covered, would be taken care of, and you could be made new. And when he did that, when he gave up his spirit for us, it says that the temple curtain that hid the presence of God from the people was torn from top to bottom, and the presence of God came out among the people. And on the day of Pentecost, his spirit filled them, and now the spirit of the living God lives within you. And you don't have to live in a spirit of death. You get to live in a spirit of life because of him. You can let all that shame and guilt die. God knows you're not going to get it right all the time, and he doesn't expect you to get it right all the time. It says this. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that there is the spirit of the living God in us, we have a power within us to do something that people couldn't do before. Before we were just doing our best to keep our spirit and our flesh in alignment. But now if you follow Jesus, you receive the power of the living God and his spirit to help you make better choices, move in a different direction, want the things that God wants you to want and move in the direction God wants you to move to receive the bounty of his joy and his goodness. And all those things that the flesh is telling you you need, God's got a better purpose in mind for you when you're living in his will. And he, the Spirit of God helps you make those choices. There is the law of flesh and the law of the Spirit. 
And for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, they set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh, that's death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so there it is. First, even though we've been living with our flesh and its desires disordered and in misalignment with our spirit, we are not condemned. We are forgiven. And this is the simple message of the gospel. We served our flesh and all the things it drove us to pursue instead of pursuing God and allowing him to order our flesh. But because he loves us so much, he sent his son to take our place on the cross, take our punishment upon himself so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be in his presence again. And so that shame that you're living with, that's forced on you by the devil's lies and your flesh's response. It is not from God. He's taken away your guilt. He wants you to be free. And to be free, we have to get our spirit in alignment with the spirit of God. So what do we do? Galatians chapter five, we're gonna go back to it. Galatians chapter five, verse 16, he says, I say to you, don't walk by the flesh. And he tells us what the flesh is. And he says, now walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another so that you are not to do whatever it is that you want. Woody Allen says the heart wants what the heart wants. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things. You are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. You fight the flesh by feeding your spirit. You have the option every day when you wake up to either feed your flesh or feed your spirit. Whichever one you feed the most is going to grow the strongest. Disordered desires drive your flesh. So order them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray. We're doing something right now where we're learning how to practice the ways of Jesus we do a large group once a month, and then they meet in small, we meet in small groups throughout the, the, the weeks in between. And one month at a time, we're just learning some of the practical practices of Jesus, these spiritual disciplines, the things that Jesus did so that we can become more like him. Last month was Sabbath, but this month we're doing prayer. We're trying to master this practice of prayer or even just embark on this practice of prayer. And if you want to know how to wage this war against your flesh and get your desires in order and align your spirit with your body so that you can live in this life and experience the joy and the peace that God has for you, then prayer is where you begin. You begin by walking in the spirit. You grow your relationship with God and with the spirit through conversation with God and by being in his spirit. Prayer prayer. Read God's word, fast, Sabbath, experience community, serve the church, worship, live the practices of Jesus, and your spirit will grow stronger. And your choices about whether or not to feed these innate desires will get a lot easier. And that's just the simple part of it. If you want to fight the flesh, live in the spirit. Do the things that God asks you to do. Just get to know him more. Serve his church. Be a part of what he is doing and it will become easier for you to stay in alignment. But you're going to make mistakes. 
There's going to be days where you get it wrong, and that's, that's part of this life. It's going to happen. And on those days, it's so important to remember who God really is. On the third page of the Bible is this incredible story that reveals who God is. You know, we, we, I just think we think of God and this story and how man was cast out of the garden. Man, man went one mistake, and God's so mean, he threw us out of the garden. But already in this page, we see that it wasn't God that distanced himself from man initially. It was man hiding from God. And then when man went to live in those consequences that God warned him about, it was man who was feeling the shame of his nakedness, who was blaming everything around him, who was doing all these things. And instead of incurring all this wrath from God, it says in Genesis 3.21, that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve and clothed them. Here is the nature of God. That these folks did the only thing he asked them not to do. Then they hid from him. They felt shame for the first time in human history. They felt naked and cold. And their father's response was to make clothes for them. He is a compassionate and gracious God. And his compassion for Adam and Eve, it applies to you as well. He would love for you to allow him to cover your shame with his warmth, with his goodness, with his peace, with his joy, with all the good things he has prepared for you in this life. That is who we serve. That's who he is. And that is why his ways are better than my ways and they are worth pursuing because he made me and he cares for me and he wants the best things for me. If you're in here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've been going through this alone. You've been trying to figure it out, but it's like one dead end after another. You can't live the best way for you. You you can't find a way that brings you joy or makes you happy. There is a way that can bring you joy and make you happy, that can give you satisfaction. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. In order to enter into a relationship with him today, you don't have to go get it right. You don't have to finish a checklist. You don't have to, you don't have to reorder your desires today. In fact, God wants to help you with that. The very first step is just to enter into relationship with him, to know him. And if you're ready to do that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, all you have to do is just say thank you to the gift he's offering you. If you're ready to do that, every head bowed, every eye closed, just pray this with me. Heavenly Father, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my mistakes. Forgive me for trying to do this on my own, for getting it all out of order. I want my life to be ordered by you. I don't want to feel this guilt and this shame anymore. God, will you free me? from my shame, deliver me from this guilt. Because from this day on, all that I am, I am yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.